Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey, you guys. Today's episode is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker brings together the finest literary communities on the web, with breakout brands, publishers, magazines, and other advertisers. It's an ad network for book people, for publishers, for authors, and for literary content providers. The Litbreaker ad network serves 5 million ads per month to nearly 1 million unique readers for dozens of happy advertisers. Do you run an online magazine or blog? You should check it out. Are you a publisher? Are you an author? Do you need to get the word out about a book? Uh, or do you need to get the word out about a product or service that would appeal to intelligent, bookish people? Look no further. Litbreaker bridges the gap between advertisers and the literary and pop cultural websites where their target customers spend their time. Visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's the very best way to reach book people online. It just is. That's litbreaker.com. Go there. Tell them I sent you. It's an advertising network for book nerds. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is probably pretty nerdy. This is trying desperately to go viral. How are you today? Where are you today? What are you doing? What is your current posture? Are you standing up? Are you in motion? Are you sitting down? Are you exercising? <laughs> uh, these are the things that I wonder. Anyway, thank you for listening. My name is Brad Listy. I'm here in Los Angeles where it is finally raining. Praise Jesus. We're getting a little bit of precipitation in the desert. I know this doesn't mean much to you, especially if you've been in uh, other parts of the country where the winter has been terrible, the snowfall has been plentiful. But out here, I, I really don't, I, you know, I think it may maybe rained once in November, a little bit. But it's been like a year 
since we've gotten any rain. <laughs> and believe it or not, that gets disconcerting after a while, especially when the reports are coming in that the entire state is uh, bone dry and that, uh, you know, the crop yield is going to, no one cares. You don't care about this, but you know, it's one of those things that you think about when you live in the desert. So it's raining currently as I record this. And uh, that feels good to me. My guest today is Adrienne Heron. Her new novel is called A Man Came Out of a Door in the Mountain. Sounds uh, ominous. Uh, the book is available from Penguin. Adrienne and I, uh, you're going to hear from her in just a moment. We had a good talk. Uh, as most of you probably know, uh, AWP happened this past week. What does that stand for? The Association of Writing Professionals? It's terrible that I don't know that. I think that's what it is. Um, AWP. It happens every year. Writers go to this thing. Uh, if you're listening to this uh, episode on Sunday, March uh, what second, the day it airs. If you're listening to it on the day that it rolls out, then uh, AWP is still happening. It is unfolding uh, as I speak. So uh, I did not make the trip to Seattle. Uh, I did not attend the the uh, conference, but I thought that it might be nice. Uh, for the purposes of this podcast that I would reach out and talk to some attendees, some people on the ground, some people uh, who are in the shit, who could give me a, like a, you know, a first person account. So uh, I wound up having a very spirited conversation with several uh, inebriated people who were staying at the uh, HTML giant house up there in Seattle in the Capitol Hill neighborhood. And uh, it wound up just becoming its own episode because it rolled on, the phone was passed around, and it just felt like I should make it its own show so people could hear that. So if you want to hear that, it's in the feed. It's a, it's just a podcast. It's a, it's, its own episode. Uh, I spoke with people like Mira Gonzalez, Spencer Madsen, uh, Gene Morgan, the managing editor of HTML Giant, and then uh, a couple of uh, young men in a hot tub. <laughs> uh, it was fun. It sounded like they were having a lot of fun. I think they were having a lot of fun. I can't imagine that they were uh, faking it. And, uh, you know, it also sounded a little bit unorthodox, uh, with regard to the entire AWP mission. You know, these people were just up there to have fun, have a party. And I guess that's how a lot of people do this thing. I'm overthinking it. It's the book fair and you got to pay for a table and you got to sit there and what are you going to do? And like, you know, some people, they just show up, they make a trip out of it to hang out with their friends. They make it simple and enjoyable. So, you know, aside from that, I tried to, uh, talk to some people who were on the ground just to see if I could get correspondence on the ground, try to make some interesting uh, contacts, hear some interesting things, but here's the problem. Okay. It's a book fair. It's a com it's a trade show. <laughs> you know, there's panel discussions. I'm not knocking that. I'm just saying that it's a hard thing to make interesting on a, uh, radio program or a podcast because, uh, we're nerds. This is a book nerd Mecca. It's like book, it's like burning man for book nerds or something like that. Uh, so just to give you a quick example, uh, I spoke with a very nice, uh, writer and, uh, college educator, I believe college instructor. He's from Boston. His name is Sebastian Stockman. Uh, and here's a little bit of uh, our conversation. I am not, I'm not in the book fair. I'm just outside 
the AWP Award Series winner's reading, which was um, sleepy. Okay, so uh, there's that. And then uh, I think I asked him uh, if he had any uh, highlights, favorite moments. One of the highlights, I went to a, uh, I was on, I went to a panel yesterday uh, that Dan Coys, the uh, editor at Slate Book Review, set up. And it was a bunch of, uh, it was on the good, what is it? The good, bad review, sort of the well-written negative review. Okay, so this actually was interesting. We had a good uh, talk about uh, negative reviews. We got into it because he had been to this panel. All of these uh, book critics from various prestigious publications were on this panel, and they were all essentially defending their right to negatively review books, which I tend to support. I mean, I've been on the receiving end of uh, bad book reviews, which feels shitty, which I said to Sebastian, but, you know, it's a necessity. We can't have all nice book reviews. Who wants to live in that world? And and that was the, that was sort of the uh, that was sort of the you know I mean everybody on that panel was pretty much in uh, in agreement. But it was it was great. You know, it was like a little it was like a mini lit class because he'd asked each um, Dan had asked each uh, panelist to like choose their you know one of their favorite negative reviews, and so they okay. So you basically get the gist. We're talking about a panel discussion. Uh, I don't mean to cut Sebastian off. He was kind enough to talk to me, but there's only so much you can say. You know, you kind of have to be there and experience the thing. And uh, the real action, uh, it seems to be happening off-site and in the hotels, <laughs> or at least one hopes. So uh, if you went to AWP, if you happen to be in route home and you're listening to this, I hope you had a good time. If you did not go, I hope you had a good time not going. And, uh, otherwise what? I think we should just get on with the show. I think that's it. If you want to hear, uh, offsite stuff from AWP Seattle 2014, just listen to the, the other episode, you know, the special episode with the HTML giant people. That'll give you a taste of what, uh, of what they were up to and what I think a lot of people were up to up there in Seattle. Okay. Uh, and also, uh, you know, you, you're going to hear me talking in today's episode and in, uh, I think Wednesday's episode with, uh, authors who are at AWP, Adrienne, I spoke with from her hotel room in Seattle. So we discuss, uh, AWP a little bit before we, you know, before we get into the heart of the interview, uh, just a natural introduction. So, uh, that's it. I think my guest is Adrienne Heron, her new novel, which is now out, uh, from, uh, Penguin is called, a man came out of a door in the mountain, and I'm very pleased to have her here, and I think you're going to like hearing from her. Here she is. This is Adrienne Heron, and her new novel, once again, is called A Man Came Out of a Door in the Mountain. I am in a room at the Grand Hyatt in downtown Seattle. Okay, so AWP. At AWP, getting ready to go to AWP. I actually just took the ferry. I, I live in uh, Port Townsend, which is on the Olympic Peninsula, and it's about an hour's drive and then the ferry ride over. Um, so I just got over a little while ago on the ferry and made my way to, up to downtown. Okay, so this is like home turf, AWP. You haven't had to endure, like, some sort of hellish cross-country flight or anything. So that, that, Right, exactly. That yeah, makes, a little, no. makes it a little bit less painful. Yeah, <laughs> it's such an odd thing. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I go, I've been over this on this show before, and, I, you know, 
I, I want to be sensitive because I don't want to – if people really love it and they're having a good time, I don't want to be the guy that sits there and tries to rain on the party or rain on the parade. Or you know, whatever. even people that love it, I mean, everybody recognizes it for what it is. In fact, our local uh, – like Seattle's local alternative paper, The Stranger, just published this big thing about the types of people you see. I mean, AWP is a huge thing to Seattle because we're a book town or they're a book town, whatever. Sure. Um, but it's – it's uh but everybody recognizes it's nutty okay yeah i feel that way and i like i just uh published something on the nervous breakdown the other day and this guy like um oh god i should look at his name just because that would be rude not to but he wrote a big essay about it and he was talking you know about it in a lot of different respects his name is anish shivani and uh you know, it's like it's like there's an insularity to it. Like, I, I guess they're going to have the book fair open to the public this time around. But uh, a lot of the people who attend are academics and writers and publishers. So it's not right. like like it, it would make more sense to me if it was like, oh, my God, this is the one time when like the general public comes and like, <laughs> you know, interacts right. with book people. But it's basically just authors and book people interacting with one another. It, it is like 12,000 incredibly socially awkward people in one place. Um, it, it, it's so it's so much you know weird eye contact and eye contact avoidance and um, <laughs> awkward conversation. I mean, it is really the strangest thing. And we we kind of volunteer to do this. Yeah. So it's, it's odd. Yeah. Why do you volunteer? I mean, I guess you got to go. You're, <laughs> you're rolling a book out into the world, but like if yeah, that's why I'm doing it right now. I don't go to it all the time. I've gone to maybe three or four of them. And at this point, I know so many people that it. For me, it's like one of those weird dreams where people from grade school show up and, yeah. you know, get all sorts of... So you just never know who you're looking at. And sometimes it's just fabulous because you've got the drinking partners you've dreamed about for years. You know, the last time you had a great time with people are there. Um, so And then other times it's just like, oh, God, just get me out of here as fast as you can, you know. Sure. Well, I mean, it's going to be a mix with that many people. You're going to have to endure, yeah. a little, you know, <laughs> a little of the latter and then hopefully enjoy some of the former. Right, so. and everybody feels the same way, so they're all looking at you exactly the same way. <laughs> do, you, do you sense, do you sense uh, competition? Like, do you have, like, can you tell that people feel like kind of an, an intense uh, level of competitiveness with their fellow writers? I mean, it must be, I mean, it's got to be part of the calculation to have, like, thousands of writers descending upon a city to sort of like mill around in the same conference center and like eyeball one another uh, and go to panel discussions and whatnot and not feel some, I think some of the, you know, some people are maybe uh, more sharply competitive than others. Like, do you experience any of that or you sense know, it? It, it, yeah, I, I see, I see it. It's just not in the people that I know at all. I mean, there's, you know, there's a group of sort of newly minted MFAs, for instance, and people that are really trying to come up in the writing world uh, as fast as they can. And, um, and there's this deep anxiety in people that have been trying for years and years and, and haven't made it or are teaching somewhere and, um, you know, teaching is always, I thought it's the weirdest, I mean, I, I don't teach, I teach in two universities, MFA programs, but they're low-res programs. I'm not a tenured faculty member. I don't have to do committees or anything like that. And I think it's the oddest profession. It's like, it's like war. Um, and everybody in those departments always seems to have these terrible stories. And there's a little bit of that that kind of runs into it. Um, but, you well, know, I don't what, think what do you mean? What do you mean exactly? Like competition for tenure track positions and stuff like that? No, no. It's like over paperclip type stuff. It's like the most ridiculous wars you'll ever. I mean, 
there, there's always this like tension, I guess, between the creative writing and the literature departments because the literature departments think the creative writing departments are bullshit, and the creative writing of course, think they're valuable and that the literature is not offering that much. And so there's always this tension between them and who gets funds and things like that. But it, it goes down to details. I mean, I'm not part of this, so I can, um, I just hear it and think, oh, it just sounds, um, ah, it, it just sounds like the oddest, most Seinfeldian medieval um, Tedium. kind of way to go to work. <laughs> yes. You know, it's just, it, it's just odd. Well, I feel, I feel like, you know, maybe that's just, sometimes I, when people are fixating on these things that seem really inconsequential or tedious, a lot of times I think it's because uh, they're worried about something else. Do you know what I'm saying? Like if you're fixated on yeah. pa- if you're fixated on paper clips, it's not the paper clips that are bothering you; it's something else. Their uh, private agony. Something. Um, yeah. yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> have you ever taught, Brad? Do you, I, have you? Wor- I have in 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 a similar way. Like I was never tenure track or anything, but I taught as an adjunct. Um, you know, here in LA at Santa Monica college. So I, I felt, you know, you know, really autonomous actually. Like they just sort of gave me my classes and I showed up and taught and really, I really loved the classroom work. Um, you know, the grading and the reading, um, undergraduate short stories and essays and stuff like that in volume could wear me down just because, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) you know, I don't know that, that part of it was not my favorite aspect of it, but I don't, I think that's the case for most people. Like I like the, the, the classroom stuff. Yeah, and I think that's what you were saying before about something else bothering people when they get into these little um, battles. Uh, I think that's part of it. I think showing up in the classroom every day for a lot of people, teaching the same thing, hearing the sound of your voice saying the same things, and um, and just basically being alone, too, a lot of the time, it really does wear people down. Um, and if you have ambitions in other directions... I'm sure it comes out in strange ways. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it's interesting. You talk about being alone because that's such a big part of being a writer. And I've been thinking about this lately um, because I have, you know, I really like people and I like talking to people. But yet uh, I find myself oftentimes being like, ah, no, I'd rather not go out. I'll just stay home (laughs) or, you know, I'll just I'll avoid AWP or whatever it is. And these things seem to be in conflict with one another. I, I, I feel like that's maybe like a central tension to the writing life, which is maybe why I gravitated toward it, where you're trying to connect with people and yet you do that by sitting alone <laughs> in a room and, and trying to you know, string together a story of some kind. But do you have any kind of like inner tension in that way with respect to socializing with people? Like, do you consider yourself... <laughs> Are, are you ad- are you adept at it? Is this? I mean, am I stating the obvious here? No, I, no, I, I agree with you in many ways. I mean, here, I, I have the advantage of um, not living in any kind of rarefied community. Um, I don't live in a city. I live in a small town. It's a you know a boat building kind of town. My husband is a mechanic who owns a garage. Um, our friends, everybody works, you know, doing different things. I have lots of writer friends, and I have artist friends and all that, musician friends. But everybody's got another job somewhere. So it's our conversations are not just about writing, for instance. And the time I spend alone is really the time I'm spending working on my writing, trying to get better at it. And then when I go out i mean yeah i'm i'm when i'm at home i'm i don't i don't go out very much or do very much unless somebody stops by or um you know whatever i'm the same way i'll I'll make a choice not to go do things but 
But you can't help it when you live in a small town. You're just part of it. You go to the store, everybody knows you, you go to the bank, whatever you do, you take a walk, you see 20 people you know. So you're in, you're involved anyway. So you just have to live through it. Are you, I mean, does that bother you? Because I've, I've noticed this about friends of mine who live in small towns that that's the case. Like they, they can't leave their house without running into people and having like 15 yeah. different conversations. Whereas I live in Los Angeles and I leave my house and like anonymity is almost a guarantee. You know, you can just blend right. or you're just stuck in your car. So you're boxed off from everybody else. But, um, do you, do you like that? I do. I, I, in fact, I'll take you one further. My favorite thing is to be in a foreign country <laughs> where, where nobody, like I can't speak the language. Right. Nobody could talk to me anyway. I'm just like, great, perfect. You know, and I can just blend and watch, but you know, I do envy sometimes, at least mentally, this idea of having a, a stronger sense of community. And you know, my friend lives in uh, my friends live in Crested Butte up in Colorado, uh, which is a tiny ski town, beautiful. Uh, but I, w- you know, I went and visited them, and we walked out into town. And my buddy and I are walking down Main Street or whatever it's called, you know, this the heart of town. And we were just going to, I think we were going to brunch or whatever it was, you know. But it took us like. 45 minutes to get yeah. a half a mile you know like, right. it was because yeah. everybody stopped and like and for him he's so used to it like he just stopped and talked and you know i'm i guess more uh, acclimated to city living or whatever and i was just like what are we doing like let's go you know? like, <laughs> uh, but you know there's something nice yeah. about that he's not in a hurry he's less time focused it's not you know he's more patient and and he's got neighbors that he actually knows and all that stuff Right. Yeah, I mean, there's there's times when you really hate it, and there's times when you're just so grateful for it. It's like a different kind of connection. Plus, you know, I've been in the town long enough that I've watched people get old and, you know, kids grow up and all that sort of thing, and it's it's pretty um, stunning, actually. It, it, it shouldn't be. I mean, that's what life's all about, but it's just this always this marvel of, wow, I get to see this show in front of me and see these characters develop and... Um, it's pretty interesting sometimes. Yeah. Well, no, and it gives you a sense of rootedness. And, you know, I live in Los Angeles, so hearing you talk about having friends who aren't constantly jabbering about, like, creative life uh, also sounds sort of nice. <laughs> Where, you know, in Los Angeles, everyone's, I mean, I guess people are talking about the film and television business more than they are literary concerns. But, um, right. you know, the, the, <laughs> the creative arts are the, the main industry in this town. So, it's kind of inescapable and it can get uh, exhausting in its own way. You know, everyone's doing it in this town. And uh, I've talked to authors who have lived in places like this. You know, I've talked to like Brooklyn authors who have, you know, done their time in Park Slope or whatever. And then they move away and they get themselves at a remove and they're in a place where they're kind of the only writer in town or, you know, they're a decided minority and they're, they're not surrounded by people trying to do the same thing. And they've found it really, you know, liberating. Yeah, I wondered if they would miss it, because um, places from afar, places like Brooklyn, look um, they look both intense and, and kind of nourishing. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, it's like, I don't think there's a right call. I think it's just, I mean, I feel like it's whatever, you know, some people have uh, preferences. And then I think some of it, too, is just, you get used to it. You know, I've moved around yeah. enough to know that, like, you can adjust to anything. It just takes about a year. And maybe you had, you like one place better than the other, but I, I never thought I would live in LA and I've adjusted to it and find myself liking it. And, um, I've also lived in small towns and I like that. And I, I just think that, I think that's it, you know? Yeah. So, uh, what about you in the Pacific Northwest? Is this where you're from? Like born and raised? No, no, I was born in Philadelphia oh. and I lived back there and, um, and in New Jersey. Um, okay. 
through high school. And, um, yeah, so this, but I married a Canadian um, and who was from out here and just wanted to hightail it back to the Northwest as fast as he could. We married pretty young, and so we've been out here a long time. How old were you when you married? 21. Oh, wow. That is young. Yeah, it is now. Then it it wasn't, it didn't seem, uh, maybe it was, I don't know. I don't know, we just, um, yeah, I don't know. But yeah, I mean, things have changed. I do, I do feel like nowadays, I mean, I'm 38, so I feel like my generation, most of my friends got married in their, you know, late 20s was as early as it got, really. Right. Um, right. But more and more, it's like, you know, people are getting, it's, it seems like it just keeps getting pushed back and people start having kids like in their late 30s. And, um, you know, my mom and dad, uh, I want to say my mom had a baby when she was 22, which seems incredible to me. Uh, because when I think of myself at 22, <laughs> I think I still was a yeah. baby, you know, but it's just different yeah. times. Well, yeah. And sometimes when we tell people when we got married, it's, it's like an Appalachian story. You know, we have to say, no, 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 it really didn't really happen in middle school. Cause to them, it feels like it all, you know, we were just way, way too young to us at the time. We were, you know, we're already cruising the country and doing things. It was just part of the fabric of stuff. Sure. So did you have a big adjustment to make going from like living in Philly and Jersey and suddenly being in the city? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally, totally. I remember the first time we drove out here, um, my husband, Allie, uh, was really, he wanted to take me to see the Pacific. So we drove to the coast. And, and, you know, I'm a Philadelphia, Jersey girl kind of person. And I'm thinking, you know, down the shore where we used to go and, and, you know, cut school and go and hang out on the beach all day. And it would be hot and all that. And and we drove out to the beach here on the West End. And all of a sudden we're getting into deeper and deeper fog. Um, And then we're on the beach and there are like creatures. There are like these birds and things all over the place. You can't see anything in front of you. And I was just like, get me the hell out of here. It was really scary the first few times. I I had no appreciation for what I now have appreciation for. I just want to get out. I need to spend time in the Pacific Northwest. I haven't spent any time in Seattle. I've been to Portland uh, very briefly years ago, but like it's just a part of the it's a part of the country that I want to see. And uh, oh, it's great. There's something sort of spectacular, and then like that that fog in the woods and the gloominess. Not the gloominess, but um, just gloomy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's gloomy, but there's also something sort of like magical about it. It feels sort yes. of like uh, you know some sort of like Hobbit like world. <laughs> if that's the yeah. if that's the right way of putting it, but. Uh, it also seems like uh, writerly, like it might be a good place for a writer to hunker down. I think of, you know, Seattle, and I think we were talking before we came on the air about how it's a book town, which I really do believe it is. You know, Portland yeah. and Seattle, um, maybe as a function of the environment and the climate, you know, people really read there, and, and it's a big part of the culture in ways that it might not be elsewhere. And um I don't know. It seems like a nice, beautiful spot. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think it's a pretty vibrant place um, in that we're not really bound to what anybody, um, I mean, to publish things, definitely you start thinking, you know, about New York. But most of the time, it's, it's really, the conversation is, a, is on a different track entirely than what's going on in New York or L.A. or, or any other place. And, and it's, it's kind of interesting because you're not hearing the same line all the time. Not that that's all the same line. I don't mean to dismiss New York and LA altogether, but it's just a different place. Sure. And, and then what about um, you know the, the proximity, especially in Port Townsend, because you're north of Seattle, right? Yeah. So, okay. So when you live in Port Townsend and you have proximity to the Canadian border, um, does that? Yeah, we're we're not too far away. Okay, but I'm, I'm interested because 
Um, you know, American and Canadian culture can sometimes get conflated. There's obviously a lot of similarity. Uh, but you live, it, you know, near a, an international border, which a lot of people yeah. in the United States Isn't don't. Isn't that cool? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, like, if, if the shit hits the fan, you could theoretically flee. <laughs> we, just, we just dive and go, yeah. Um, but yeah, do, do you no, feel I, it? I, I, actually, <laughs> I actually just was in Vancouver last week. I had to give a reading at the downtown public library. Um, and my novel is set in, in Canada, so I was really nervous about this. Um, but you know, it's it's such a different place, even though it's the same. There's just a just a different um, ethos. Like just people are, they're just there's a different kind of directness and a different kind of um, uh, moving away. What's the word for moving away from the subject? Evasiveness, I, I guess. Um, and uh, but you know, and the other thing which is odd is that I read a lot of Canadian writers, for instance. But not that many really cross the border. Our border is porous one way, like American lit goes way up there. U.S. fiction is all over the place there. But we don't get that many Canadians. We get maybe four or five. Well, we don't get very many authors from outside. I mean, you know, Americans don't read international fiction or international literature in the way that we probably should. Is that right? I feel like I feel like I, yeah. that's correct. But I, I think I, when I when I teach, I definitely see that because I'll mention even British writers, and you know, if they're not from the region some of my students are from, or they're not the current, um, you know, hot writer, they haven't heard of you know, you know, any you know, lots of people. <laughs> I didn't get right. think of names, but well, um, you know. Well, I want to say I think I'm like mentally recalling, and I could be incorrect, but I'm recalling something regarding like the Nobel Prize in Literature and how an American hasn't won it in a long time, and it was somebody commenting on that and how Americans don't have, um, you know, much to say about like the international conversation in the way that like authors from other countries do, or they, do you know what I'm saying? There's like a lack of outward-looking interest, maybe. Um, and I don't know. That makes some sense to me, considering like a small percentage of our population even like has a passport you know we don't go around we don't go look out as much as people in other countries might but we we do steal tv shows from other countries right that seems to be a big trend you know? yeah you take yeah the, you take the template like i want to say house of cards was a british show it was definitely yeah and the killing <laughs> was what um a danish show i don't know if you ever watched the killing no what is the but- killing the Killing is set in Seattle, the, the American version. Oh, so okay. it, it, it was, yeah, yeah. So it was one of those that, um, but I believe it, let's see if I can get my gossip right. I believe it's uh, Camilla, Prince Charles's wife's favorite show, okay. is The Killing, the Danish version. All right. I'll have to check it out. I mean, have you, have, I've, been, <laughs> I've been watching House of Cards. Like, I, I got into that one. I got really sick last summer, like, unusually, like, bad flu, where I like, had the chills and I was just in bed. And it was so bad that I sent my wife and daughter like out of the house for like three days just to like quarantine myself. And uh, I was like, I don't want you guys. I, I, yeah, I don't want you guys to get this. Just leave me alone. <laughs> you ever you ever have that where you have the flu and you're yeah. just like you're just like stay yeah. away from me. I just want to be ill in private. And so they left and went away for the weekend. And I just laid in bed and I watched the entire first season of that show in like you know this long flu ridden binge. So I got into it. And uh, it feels like a really, it feels like a really high end soap opera, which might yeah, not, which it's pretty might, dismal. Yeah, it's like I mean, it feels like especially as the second season progresses, I'm like this because I grew up in a house uh, with sisters and a mom who watched a lot of soap operas. So, like the formative narrative experience of my childhood was like Days of Our Lives. 
Did you, did you follow them yourself? Did you know who they were talking about? Oh my, oh my God, I, I grew up watching Days of Our Lives, uh-huh. Another World, Santa Barbara, General Hospital, and All My Children. Uh, I'm not even kidding. Wow, you, you had the full uh, palette there. Yeah, my sister still tapes them. She still, or DVRs them now, but she still watches They're still. Are they still on? They're, I didn't even think they were still on television. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, but I remember, like, not too long ago, she was still watching it and, like, you know, reading Soap Opera Digest. Like, she gets into it. It's relaxing for her, but... Um, oh, so you're watching House of Cards going, oh, Claire Underwood, I know who she's going to go. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> there, I mean, it's a lot of the same tropes, but it's but it's dressed up in this like really like David Finchery high, you know, yeah. highbrow cinematic. But it's like, this is just a soap opera to me anyway. Right. Um, so anyhow, back <laughs> to... The, oh, go yeah, ahead. I was just going to say the original House of Cards, the one that the, the British one, has a, a different kind of um, feel to it. It's a little a little more humorous in ways. Oh, it is okay. Yeah, I mean, I, well, yeah. I, I, you know, I can't bag on it too hard because I've watched, you know, almost like fifty episodes of this thing at this point, or whatever. Oh, it is. it is so dismal when you binge on that thing and you get up from the couch and you look out and the light from the day is gone and all that, <laughs> and, um, and and you're in this sort of gray, you know, underworld wood world. Um, it is it it just like it, it hits something dark in your soul. I I've done that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, okay, so here's what I want to talk about because this is how I can tie it back into writing because. Because this is where I okay. think the, this is where I think the show speaks to something in my own experience that gnaws at me, and it's that you know you find there is like this kind of weird moral ambiguity that the show produces where you kind of find yourself liking these people in some weird way, even though they're horrible and they're doing right. they're doing horrible things. You have this like weird respect for the way they operate. It's fun to watch them play chess or whatever it is, um, and I find myself looking out at life in general. And looking at how people do what they do and who succeeds, and if you wanted to like you know narrow it down to the literary life, I find myself wondering if you have to be an operator like that. Like, to what extent do you have to be able to manipulate people, uh, network uh, strategically, and charm people? And you know what I'm saying? Like, do you ever think to yourself, "My God, is this what it takes in in life to be this cold blooded or to be this?" Um, I don't know. Uh, just... It probably depends on what your ideas of um, success are, you know, or, or winning. I mean, that, those are pretty linear ideas, I think, in, in House of Cards and other things, and even in writing sometimes on what success means um, and, and and how you know when you, you're making it or you're winning or whatever. And I, I don't think there's any one way to do that. So what does success mean to you as a writer? Because that's a good point, you know, like... I think a lot of us think like, oh, I'll be published in the New Yorker or like I'll have I'll be making a living from what I write. Like what what is success? Um, you know, I, all that stuff figures in. I mean, all of us, if we were published in the New Yorker, probably would feel great about ourselves for 10 minutes or so until somebody said, ah, you know, it's a pretty good New You read something on a blog or whatever. It was pretty good. New Yorker story wasn't the best. And <laughs> they'd feel terrible about yourself again. Um, but you know, I, for me, the, my best moments as a writer have come either by myself when I've finished something or I've written something or I'm just totally subsumed by um, chills, really, real absolute chills, like physical chills where I think something is here and it's not, it's bigger than me. And I like that feeling, even if it's just two sentences. It's like, this is bigger than, than Adrian. Um, and the other time is when I'll have somebody who's read it whatever I've written and just 
get it on even a different level than I've intended, but it, it, it like hit them in a way. And, and that's just this, this total magic. There's, um, oh, you know, there's something called the secret sympathy about things affecting, um, one thing affecting another through a space that appears to be empty. Uh, it's kind of sympathetic magic. And that moment when somebody's read something that I've written and they, they feel something, that's sympathetic magic to me. And, and that's success to me. That feels great. Um, the other stuff is great for about five minutes, really, and then you start feeling total. At least I feel pretty self-conscious, and I just want people to stop looking at me. <laughs> so You know, you, really, truly. Yeah, I mean, no, I mean, that's, I think that's health, that sounds healthy. Um, do you have, like, a, a, do, does... The book sales, um, does that factor into your calculation at all? Like, oh, you- um, the, my first book was a book of short stories, which I didn't know at all that they don't sell. Um, and it was, uh, you know, it, it won a prize, and then it was published by Houghton Mifflin, and um, I just thought that was wonderful and great. But I didn't, you know, I was kind of oblivious to the whole uh, success part of publishing. And um, the novel I've just published is being published in a bigger way, and it's a novel, and people are actually reading it. So uh, that's gratifying. Um, as far as the numbers, I have no idea. Yeah. Well, I mean, but I mean, like, I, I don't know. I think some people out there, uh, you know, when they're defining success for themselves as a writer, they might be more, um, what's the word I'm looking for, numerical about it? You know, like I have to sell X amount of copies. I have to be making X amount of money. Uh, maybe, yeah, you know, I don't know. That's if you're trying to, li- you know, I know I can't live off writing. I really can't, and um, and I've done a ton of odd jobs over the years. I mean, really, some of them very odd. And um, and and now I teach, and that, of course that's that's a big money maker too. <laughs> I say that laughing, um, but um, but you know, I, I we live a really humble lifestyle. And in all good ways. I mean, it's just, it's not like, um, I wouldn't say that we're environmentally conscious and that's why we do, although, you know, of course we try and think about blah, blah, blah. It's just that we don't have a lot of, um, a lot of stuff that we need. We have everything we need, you know, and, and everything we want pretty much. And, um, uh, as long as we can go have uh, a beer or do things, you know, hang out with friends, and I'm making this sound so drab, but um, no, we we have a pretty good life. So I don't I don't need you know I, I, this sounds so stupid. I don't really need to make a lot of money. Well, that's good though. You know, like that's like I think there's like a real value in simplicity because uh, it, it can be, especially if you're living in a place like Los Angeles where the cost of living is so high. Like I come up against yeah. this where you're like, holy shit! Like how am I going to make the math work? Um, it'd be nice to not have such uh, difficult math. <laughs> you know yeah, what I'm saying? Exactly. And, and to be able to afford, a, you know, if if you can find a way to make it work. The difficulty, of course, is that if you move to this place where uh, the cost of living is lower, a lot of times there's less opportunity, and you have to find a way right. to fit yourself into the community. And you know exactly. that that can be the challenge. Yeah. But um, and that's exactly what you do. I mean, when I we first came to Port Townsend, there was nothing there. I mean, it, there's really nothing there. There was, you know, some wooden boat building. There was a mill. Um, and I think uh, my husband, Allie, drove like an hour to this other town, Port Angeles, every day, just there, an hour there and an hour back for one job. And, you know, for after, but after a while, you sort of kind of create your own jobs. And I think there was one point where I had four jobs, um, but one of them was working at Grey Wolf Press, which had just started there, had been there a little while. 
and because uh, it, it started in Port Townsend. Oh, it did. And yeah, I didn't yeah, know it was that. there for a long time. Yeah, oh. yeah, it was there till about nineteen ninety uh, something. Why did it leave? Uh, because it was a nonprofit, and Minnesota had much better funding for nonprofits. Washington had nothing. Okay. So Scott Walker started it. Just started. He opened an office in uh, Minnesota, and then he started commuting back and forth, and it damn near killed him. So eventually, he moved it to Minnesota. Um, but Copper Canyons and Port Townsend too, the Poetry Press, and there were a couple other presses. And you know, it's a little town. At that point, it was like seven thousand people. Right. So it was pretty dynamic, um, and everybody's making their own their own way. You know, doing one thing or another, starting this, starting that. You could start anything. You could buy a house for thirty thousand dollars if you. Were, it, that's if you were a rich person. You go buy the house. You know. Wow. And uh, so it was a place to get. Now it's not like that. It's gotten gentrified like crazy, but. Um, but at that time, it gave everybody a chance to do things. Does, do people live, who work in Seattle commute and live in Port Townsend? Uh, not so much. It's not a so long much. haul. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, there's a lot of um, what we call Microsoft millionaires. They're probably billionaires by now or whatever. There's people that work in the tech industry that have weekend homes or something out okay. there. Sure. Uh, or they might stay there part of the time or, you know, something like that. That's where they have, like... Like you know, think sessions or whatever about like the next great yeah, yeah. gadget. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so how did you become? Uh, let's talk about how you became a writer. Like, do you come from writerly parents? Like, do you have an artistic family? Uh, God, no, no. I come from. My dad was Polish. My mother's Irish. Philadelphia people. I think the books that the the real happening books in my parents' library were things like James Michener. Yeah. Um, that they got through maybe Book of the Month Club when they belonged once or twice. But my dad was a doctor. He had a lot of scientific books um, and a great PDR, you know, that I loved going through. And um, that's the physician's desk reference that right. describes every drug. That was always exciting because you could find <laughs> out what the contraindications were of something. Like, oh, if you take this, this will happen or, or this could happen. It was like kind of the precursor of those Viagra commercials that come on every night. <laughs> um, but it was a great book. I loved it. Um, but no, they didn't. My parents are not great readers or, you know, musicians or artists. They're, you know, my dad was a doctor. My mother was a nurse. Okay. And so do you, can you, but you can tra you can't trace it. Like we, neither of them like were latent writers or like secretly harbored some sort of artistic ambition. Um, not really. I think, you know, uh, there are a lot of us who are raised Catholic, but I don't know how you were raised. Catholic. Um, but <laughs> yeah. And you know, there's something about that, um, you know, especially Philadelphia Catholic, um, where you're, you're constantly aware that there are other stories that aren't being told. Like you'll be in a room and there'll be secrets. Um, and so if you're a certain kind of kid, you want to know what the secrets are. Sure. And I think that's what probably pulled me more towards telling stories than anything else is being raised Catholic. Okay. So did, uh, where did you go to school? You Did you stay out east, I guess? Oh, God. I'm one of those people that went to like 14 different colleges before I finally got a degree. Okay. Actually, I think there were only three, but um, I started out at um, Sarah Lawrence. All right. And um, bopped around for a while and finally got a degree in English literature because they had the most credits in that. Um, and then went off years later and got an MFA um, from Warren Wilson. Okay. So, but like, why did it take you long? Were you just kind of, were you a wild? Uh, young, yeah. You were. I, I was for a little while, yeah. I mean, here I had, you know, I, I, I met my husband when I was in high school. I'm sorry, what did you say? I met my husband when I was in high school. 
Oh, when, um, when we you were not married in high school. Let me just clarify that part. Um, but I met him when we were really young, and so there were always things we wanted to do or go here or, you know, cross the country or live in Vermont for a while or, you know, whatever. So wait, and, if, he's, if he's from Canada, how did, how did you guys meet if you were out east? Well, his father was a really famous physicist um, who worked at Bell Labs in New Jersey. Okay. So I met him when they were, they were living there. And he's a famous he physicist? At, what, did, what did he do that made him a famous physicist? A famous physicist? He, um, this, this is what I know. He worked at Bell Labs, and he was head of the Solid State Device Laboratory, which is microwaves and things like that. But he developed, um, he did all the groundwork for the maser and the laser, and he developed the electronic bubble, which is the base of every computer chip. Um, so he was kind of a really big deal in the physics world. My God. Yeah. He's like an able, he's enabled like modern life to exist then, right? I mean, if- yeah, yeah, I blame him for a lot. <laughs> right. We finally, we finally found the guy we can blame for the internet. Yeah, yeah. But he also introduced me to the beauty of Ziploc bags. I have this major love for Ziploc bags. My father-in-law used to put everything in a Ziploc bag. You know, if he was going to give you a business card, he'd probably put it in a Ziploc bag. He'd just keep it safe. <laughs> and I've, I've developed, since he died, I've, I've developed that, that love for Ziploc bags. They are pretty awesome when you think about it. Yeah, they are. They're amazing. You know, some things like the design is just perfect. You're like, okay, this, this works. Right. Now they have the zipper thing, so you don't even have to, you know, make it work. You right. just zip it all Right. Yeah. It's extraordinary. Yeah. So and yeah. by the way, I have a young child, so we're ziplocking a lot of things. I feel like Good, smart, yeah. really smart. Because <laughs> what the world needs now is more plastic bags. <laughs> right. Well, you know, you just have your collection. Yes. You try to reuse. You rotate them. it. Uh, well, you, um, okay. So you meet your husband in Jersey. Then he wants to go back uh, west. Northwest, yeah. Um, so you guys dated throughout your college years, and did you do? I mean, were you a, a wild? I mean, you said you were kind of wild. Like, what did that? What does that mean? I was wild younger. I played music when I was um, a young person, like from the age of really young, like thirteen, fourteen. I was singing and playing music outside New York and in New York, and um, and uh, in fact, that's one of the reasons I went to Sarah Lawrence. I had made like audition tapes and things like that, and you know, um, you and so I did sing. a lot of. Well, I did then. I sang a lot then. Now it's kind of like a runner, you know, who was great in high school and then gets out and tries it now. Um, but, uh, yeah, I really I really love to sing. And um, so I, that put me in a crowd that was much older than me um, and doing lots of interesting things and kind of was the, the wild and crazy person until I was about 18 or 19. And then, then I started to settle down. <laughs> well, see, that's – I mean, I feel like – were you? Did you? Did you uh, grow up in Philly? Like, were you a city kid, or were you? No, uh, no, I did. I was more childhood in Philly, and I went to high school in New Jersey. Okay, but did you yeah. have? Was this like Jersey, like right outside of New York City, or was this South Jersey? Um, kind of about maybe an hour outside of New York. Okay, because I just I have this theory that people who grow up with like access to these big, uh, you know, these big cities. They tend to be wilder at younger ages and get it out of their system, and then suburban kids That's like great me. Theory. What's that? Yeah. I said that's a great theory. I like that theory. Yeah, because I mean, suburban kids like me, like we finally get to college and then we go nuts. But yeah. I knew kids who were like, you know, raised in Manhattan or whatever, and by the time, like, they were a lot calmer. <laughs> they, they'd already got it out of their system. Like, right. they've, they've been traveling the subway at two in the morning since they were eleven. No, I, yeah, I, I literally had a friend who was like, he was like the calmest, nicest most organized just like he had his shit together in college in a way that almost nobody i knew did he got married when he was in college 
Um, it was, and they're still married. Like, yeah, it was bananas. Yeah. And, and, and he was like telling me, he's like, yeah, you know, like I committed arson when I was 14. I, was like, <laughs> <laughs> I know there were crazy things. I mean, even as a little kid, I mean, we, I remember I have older brothers and, um, neighbor kids and the whole deal. I remember, uh, climbing over the roof of a factory, you know, and having glass fall in and one of us taking the rope and shimmying down. We did all kinds of stuff, you know, that were just a little wilder and crazier than, um, people that I've met since. I thought everybody had childhoods like that. And some, you know, there are a group that do and love to regale you with it, but, um, not, not everybody had that. A lot of people were in the rec room. Right. <laughs> Or the yeah. shop, or the shopping mall, or whatever it was. But right, um, yeah. So this music uh, that you were playing, like, was it rock and roll? No, it was, well, sort of. It was like folk blues. Okay. It was. It was. Um, and I wrote a lot of my own stuff, which tells you a lot, right there. <laughs> um, but, um, but I was really fortunate in that I, I had um, lucked into some really good musician friends. So they taught me more than I would have learned anywhere else, and and I got to play in cool spots with them, and so it was fun. So what was the name of, like, one of your original numbers? Oh, God, I don't know. I remember my most embarrassing one. Unfortunately, like, it's hard to remember lyrics or anything. I mean, sometimes I can I can get back and I can play whole songs again, but my most embarrassing one was something called Museum Man, was about, which was about picking up men in museums, which, of <laughs> course, I had tons of experience in. I don't know where that one came from. That is the but, place to do um, it. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's get to... You're, you're young, you're married, you're in the Pacific Northwest suddenly, uh, you're acclimating yep. to that. At what point do you start uh, writing? Um, you know, I, I wrote a little bit in college and I wrote uh, uh, published a few little prose pieces, places. Just They were almost like prose poems, I guess. I, I, I have lost them completely, which is a really good thing because in my mind they can remain wonderful. Um, and I think they were pretty awful. Um, and, but then... Uh, when I was working at Grey Wolf, I showed Scott some of my work. He was the publisher then, and, and he was really supportive. He was, he was good about it. And at one point, I just decided I – had, I had two sons, too, and my kids were little, and I thought, you know, I'm just going to go back and do something. But, it's, you know, here I am out in Port Townsend, um, no, not a lot of money or anything like that. So Warren Wilson, with his low-res program, just popped up on my radar, that, and uh, Bennington, and I decided to go to Warren Wilson, and um, so went there, met all these wonderful, famous writer people who were unbelievably encouraging and supportive. Like who? And um, I studied with Andrea Barrett and Margot Livesey, and... Um, Rick Russo was there when I was there, Charlie Baxter, um, oh, wow. Tony Nelson, Sonia Nelson, um, Joan Silver was one of my teachers too, um, just a ton of Jim Shepard, a uh, ton of really great people there at the time. And um, so it was, it was pretty stunning. It was like you go from nothing into, you know, the top group, you know, and, and, and those are the people that are, you know, being your support and teaching you. Um, I think I went to Warren Wilson with one story. I'd written one full finished story, and it wasn't really even that great. Um, and in the first semester I worked with Margot Lizzie, I probably wrote eight stories, um, you know, just a lifetime's worth at that point. And most of them made them into my first collection. Um, so um, that was it was a really amazing um, transformation that, that, that Warren Wilson MFA for me. I know if people talk about MFA programs, but for me it was just uh, 
two years to write without anybody asking me what I was doing, um, right. two years to just fully commit to something. I mean, when do you get two years to fully commit to something? Well, I was just going to say, because this is all the rage right now. Uh, I mean, it's always been all the rage in writerly circles, but there's this book out called MFA yeah, yeah. versus like, that's getting a lot of play. And, um, right. I mean, it's it's kind of a tired conversation, but, you know, it's there. and. I think that what you're saying is totally accurate. I mean, if nothing else, like, my God, it just gives you a chance to focus your energies and to be around other writers. And, you know, if there were other options where there was money or where there was at least the luxury of time, then show them to me. For God's sake, I'd I'd be happy to go live somewhere, uh, you know, without expenses and write and think and everything else. But this is this is the only show in town, really, for writers. Well, and, you know, and something like Warren Wilson, which is a low residency program. So I still worked. I still had two jobs <laughs> in Port Townsend, and I had two kids, and um, my husband had his business that I was helping him with that. So there's like all this craziness that's going on at home that I'm still working and doing while I'm in school, because the the, school, the the residencies are twice a year, and in between, you're not teaching freshman comp or anything like that. You're working your tail off, but you're also doing other work for money. Right. Um, so it was your, your real life is is entwined with it. It's not like you're in on a campus for two years and then you go out to real life. You're you're just in it. You have to learn how to write. And live at the same time. Well, let's and let's talk so, about that. Let's talk about that because I think this is something that a lot of writers uh, are, are dealing with, or or they look ahead in their lives and they think about how they might deal with it. But you know, working two jobs, having two young children, and getting your MFA and writing eight short stories in a year, it seems like an incredible amount of work to be done. You know, to be doing. So, uh, how do you how do you manage that? You know, as a mother and then as somebody who's working day jobs and then trying to get work done. Like, what did it look like for you from a time management perspective? Did it ha- did it actually help to only have a very limited amount of hours that you could focus on your writing? Did it concentrate yeah, you? Yeah, I think it did, absolutely. I, I mean, first you have to have the right, like, people around you, the right family, the right, you know, whatever. Because I don't know how supportive everybody is in those situations. Um, you go to these MFA programs and just, like, relationships are collapsed all over the place. Um, but uh, for me, it was great, and it was that 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 tiny amount of time that was just so sacred that you didn't even think about it. You didn't even think about it. I, I never, I just would start working. Oh, wait, I'm losing you. Hello? Here. Oh, okay. I don't know if you can hear me. You just cut out. You, you, cut out. you said you would just start working? Yeah, you just start working. I used to wish, um, my mailman was a friend of mine, Rick, and I used to wish that he would just slip my lunch into the mailbox because I didn't want to even get up from the desk. It was my only time. Um, but uh, And I have a friend, um, Gina Oshner, another writer, who has like four kids, and she's written all these you know books and stories, amazing stuff. She's been in The New Yorker, um, and she just does it when she's she writes in her head she does all kinds of stuff um that i couldn't do at the time but i think everybody everybody finds the space they need we're not ever going to be like somebody like john updike with you know a wife or someone to take care of everything or cheever whatever to dress in his suit and go to his office and um so we just do what we can um but you know i was going to say have lessons from that period where you had uh, so much going on and you were writing in this manner where there was no kind of like throat clearing or preamble. You just sat down and you started to work. Like, has that carried over? Is that how you, is that how it still is for you? 
Um, for a while, and then I got more time, and then things started to not be as productive, to be honest. Um, as soon as I started adding on, as I say, I teach in two MFA programs and do a bunch of other stuff. As soon as I started adding on more of that, um, yeah, I, I have my time now. I just work like crazy when I have it. So, okay, so is it just you write whenever you can, or do you have like a, a really regimented schedule where you're up before dawn and fitting it in? No, I can't do that. I, I, I really appreciate that people can do that, but, you know, I found out the best time for me to write is something like um, 3 o'clock in the afternoon when all the work is done that I have to do for other people, uh-huh. and then I can just go away from any kind, anywhere near an Internet connection, for instance, and just write for a while until, you know, um, cocktail time, I guess. I don't know. Um, yeah, <laughs> and then pretty I, much. And then I start drinking heavily. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> Wouldn't that be cool? Um, no. They, you know, and then at night sometimes I'll go back and, and revise more um, because it's much easier to, you know, sit down with the work in hand and revise. And I can do that sometimes later at night. But, yeah, you know, I, I, I love guys who talk about – it's mostly guys who talk about how many words. Like I have a friend – when I was writing the novel, and he'd say, how many words you write? How many words? <laughs> and, like, I don't know whether this is just a guy thing, um, but no women writers I know talk about it in terms of words. Interesting. Um, That's interesting because I've, I've done word count before just because I, it keeps me accountable. Like, I look at it. Like, I'll just keep a sheet of paper next to my computer, and I'll say, well, like, you know, if I got, wor- <laughs> if I got words, then I'm in the black, and I can count them. And if I didn't, then I'll write it in red. And I just – that way it's externalized, and I can look at it and know right. – I, I can't bullshit myself then. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, right. But if yeah. it'd be weird if it's like a guy thing to be like you know. I think it, I think it, from my perspective it's a guy thing, but and I really and or, or you know I don't know how many hours you're putting in at the and to me that just didn't wasn't what I was doing. But I was talking to one friend and he was doing his you know words and all that stuff and and I thought you know I'm just going to try this at the time and I thought I'm just going to try it. Well, the word thing didn't work for me, but putting in an hour. Just, just an hour and pages. How many pages? So what I started doing is, okay, I can quit every day after four pages. I gave myself four pages, um, and it was perfect. It worked great. I mean, it it gave me a lot of material and um, four pages. Well, four pages is a lot. Yeah, it could be a lot, or it could be really fast. But okay. I quit. Like if I wrote four pages in you know a short amount of time, I'd be like, I'm out of here. I'm done, and I'd leave and go do things, go for a bike ride or something, and. Other days it would take me hours and hours. That's it. I mean, four pages. I want to. I guess that's about that's about a thousand words. <laughs> I have no idea how many See? words it is. <laughs> Listen to me. Listen to me. Automatically trying to quantify it in my head. <laughs> it seems more relaxed to do it your way. Like I could find myself counting words and getting obsessed with that. But you know, it's it, but it worked. You know, it, it, it makes me. Yeah, whatever works. Yeah. Whatever works. You got to come up with your own formula. So. Right. Um, did you, uh, you said that you, you know, these stories that you were writing when you were in Margot Livesey's, uh, you know, workshop at Warren Wilson wound up in your first collection. So how did you transition from being in this, uh, low res grad, you know, MFA program to finding yourself, uh, in print? In print? I published, um, one of my first stories that was kind of a bigger story, um, was published in a story magazine. I won their contest, their short, short contest, which was a big deal at the time, and uh, got paid a bucket of money um, and uh, and got really high visibility. And um, at that point, you know, I didn't... It, it, I sound pretty ignorant, but 
This is one of the gifts of living in a small town, and even though I worked for a small press and all this other stuff, I wasn't really all that um, savvy about sending to magazines or thinking, you know, that um, they weren't going to get published. So I would just send things out, and things started to get published, and um, and then pretty soon I had this collection together. And then how did it get? How did the collection get published? The collection got published in a really fortuitous way. Um, I had, um, let's see, I got a call from uh, Swanee, which is one of the places I teach now at their School of Letters and MFA program. But I got a call from, you know, the Swanee Writers Conference and all that. Yeah. And they had, um, they, as part of, they had a bequest from um, Tennessee Williams Estate. So they had a bunch of money and they started the conference and, and they also started this writing series. Uh, where they were publishing books for a few years through Overlook Press in um, New York. And um, so they they called me once and said that, uh, you know, my collection was up for consideration. Um, and it was just a group of stories. And I, my, I, the way that I understand it was that Andrea Barrett, they had gone and asked different famous writers, do you have anybody you could recommend? So Andrea Barrett had given them my collection and a few other um, students of hers. And so, um, I, you know, I didn't really even think that much of it because I wasn't sure it was a coherent piece of work myself. But about three months later, I got a call, and they wanted to to, to publish it and um, did a little bit of editorial, and it came out about, oh, it's like a scant seven or eight months later. Um, and then Houghton Mifflin bought it for paperback. So it went very – I mean, I didn't even have an agent. I didn't have anything with that. So You must have been thrilled. That, was, that sounds lovely. <laughs> It was it was really it was really exciting, but again, you know, um, my goals are some a little bit different, I think, than some other writers. I just wanted um, I wanted to see it out there. I wanted people to read it, but I didn't have high expectations of my life changing because of it. See, but that that seems like uh, again, it seems healthier because I've I've talked to au- <laughs> I've talked to authors on this show, some of whom uh, I think suffer from. Uh, ambition or expectation, uh, and then other writers who are like, "There's no way I'm ever going to make money on this. I just do it because I love it," and they're yeah. com- and they're completely satisfied with that. And I'm not saying one's right or one's wrong, but it does seem like um, approaching it in the way that you're talking about is probably less stressful. Yeah, I think it hurts less. Yes, and I mean, you can put your real attention on you know trying to get something uh, right for you. You know, trying to tell a story you need to tell or want to tell or you know, are desperate to tell in some way. So what about the novel? Like, so how did that, uh, you know, come, uh, come, to, no- come to fruition, and then how did it find its way to uh, Penguin? Okay, so this is where I knocked down every image of my life as the luckiest writer alive. Um, I, um, I wrote a novel right after the short story collection, because by then I was hearing, oh, now you've got to write a novel. And I did have an agent at that point. And so I wrote a novel um, didn't know what I was doing, um, and I wrote it maybe six or seven times. And finally, my agent said, "You know, this is this is great. Let's send this out." So it was sent out, and it got a, it got a bunch of attention, and it was really nice. But nobody ended up taking it. At you know, so um, at, then we got to this discussion where let's just put this one away in the drawer, or you know, you, if you want to try some university presses or whatever. And, and I realized I really didn't know what I was doing. So I went back to writing stories, and I published a bunch of those and got together another collection. Um, and then um, then I had this idea for this story, something I really wanted to write. Um, to, it's 
um, it, it was sparked by this this place called the Highway of Tears, Highway 16 up in British Columbia, which runs from Prince Rupert to Prince George, and it's the site of, over the last four decades, a lot of um, Native women, Indigenous women, have gone missing or been found murdered along that highway, and there hasn't been a lot of investigation in it until very recently. So I wanted to write something about that, but not about that. I just wanted to write something that was tangential to it that would put some attention up there. And this story just started appearing, um, and it's long and entailed how I got there. But eventually I had a draft, and I sent it to my agent, and she said, this makes no sense. Really, it was all over the place. And so I rewrote it. And we went back and forth a couple of times, and finally one day she said, I love this, and sent it, and it was sold within two days. Wow. To Penguin. Okay. Yeah, okay. okay. Was, so stop right there because, um, first of all, when you're, you know, when your agent says this makes no sense, some writers might react to that by being extraordinarily frustrated considering how much work has gone into the novel and it makes sense to you, <laughs> but did, yeah, how, did you, how did you, how, <laughs> how did you process that news? Were you like, okay, I can go back in and, and make this make sense. Or were you uh, disillusioned for like a day or two? Oh, yeah, you get the day or two of, like, oh, my God, you know, how could you not see this? This is brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then I started going over her notes, going, yeah, I can kind of see that, I can kind of see that. And um, we went back and forth, and finally, at one point when she said she still didn't understand what was happening, why I went to Dickens, and and instead of of giving the chapters names, I would do, like, chapter four, in which such and such and such and such happens, and -and so-and-so meets so-and-so, and and I would just spell it out in these, like, chapter headings, Um, and I sent that back to her, and she goes, this is wonderful, I get it now, (laughs) and I hadn't changed anything except these tiny little, you know, chapters, Um, and then those went down to chapter titles, and that was the end of that. Um, and she got it, and the editors got it, so I think it was fine. Okay, so was that the big? Was really that the big um, fix that made it make sense and that got it sold in two days? Like when you take it from this makes no sense at all to it's sold in two days to uh, oh, like what did you fix? Yeah, there was there was a longer period of time in there. Um, you know, a, a lot of it was. Um, was just streamlining and making things clearer. I have a tendency to put everything that I've ever thought in my life into a piece of work, and it, it takes me a while to realize that the reader doesn't need to know all that, <laughs> and I can pull back and just and t- and streamline the story um, and get it down to its essentials and then see what I've got. And even though it seems like something I should have been doing from the very beginning, sometimes I'm so entrenched in the work, um, I, I just I can't see that. Part and so, my agent is great, and she's the person that will say step back. Who's your agent? Gail Hawkman. Okay, I always ask that just because I feel like people listening will want to know. You know. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's a very intimate relationship, you know, for a writer. And there, I mean, in in the way that it works now, your agent is usually one of your first readers, if not your first reader, and he is my first reader. Yeah, and also functions as an editor. You know, that's really the. Right. You know, it's a, it's definitely like I always hand whatever I write, I always hand it to my agent first, and she's great about giving feedback. I mean, I guess that's part of the job, but it seems like the editorial capacity for agents has increased in the last several years. Yeah, absolutely. And, do, and so you find that with your agent as well that you have that relationship where she reads and tells you what's what. And- yeah, I mean, first reader, and it just it's like, and you can you need somebody that you can send something to where you're like, this is potentially embarrassing <laughs> right you yeah know? and like i know you but i don't like really know you and like you don't know all my friends and everything yeah. so this feels safe <laughs> right 
And, you know, what's, what's good about Gail, too, is that it is a discussion. It's not like she says this is wrong or whatever um, or change this. It's not like that at all. It's like I don't get this part. Right. And then I'll, I'll go back and, you know, we'll talk about it back and forth, you know, through email or whatever. And then um, then I'll send her something else. I love revising. I don't have any problem with revision. So, um, and I, I love hearing other people's ideas, but ultimately it comes down to what I think the work should be. So, and right. she's good with that. Well, okay. So AWP now looming. Like, what's, what's your what's your plan for the weekend? Like, by the time people listen to this, the weekend will be you know nearing its Long end. Gone. Yeah, um, I have to give a reading tonight at a little nightclub down in Belltown, and um, so it's like you know eight minute readings with cocktails, which is always great. Yeah. And then, um, then I'm just you know. Brad, I'm just I'm here to visit with friends mostly. I'm, I have to do a panel presentation on Saturday on the Uncanny West, um, and then uh, a signing I think on Friday. And um, those are my obligations. The rest of the time is just, you know, I'll pop in and out. I, you know, you can hardly get into the panels anymore. There's so many people here that there's such they're so crowded. Well, and I so was gonna, a, I was going to say too, like all these readings, like offsite readings and everything. Yeah. I've heard over and over again from friends, um, you know, usually on Twitter where it's like, you know, I'm going up there to give a reading and everybody I know is giving a reading at the same time as my reading. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Like, you know, it, 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 the truth is uh, I don't really understand. I mean, they're just, they're just occasions for, um, I think for, for groups of people to get together and enjoy each other's company. I don't think strangers too much wander into, you know, a literary reviews reading and they don't know it and don't really care about it and go, wow, I'm so glad I did this. <laughs> uh, but, uh, <laughs> but I think it, it can happen. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. And, uh, you know, the offsite things, I, you know, you have to pick and choose. Sure. So, and then after AWP, you have a, like a book tour beyond? Yeah, I do. I do. This, um, I'm going you, a bunch of places. You excited for High that? spots like the Zor. Pardon? You excited? Yeah. Um, I, I am because there are places uh, where I know people, and um, I really love talking about this book. I'll tell you, I love talking about this book, and I love reading from it. It's the first, it's the most enjoyable reading experience I've ever had. Um, and so it's it's been a really fun engagement with um, audiences that I've never had before. So, so when I, you say when you say it's the most enjoyable reading experience that you've ever had, you mean like live reading, like when you're reading your own work. Yeah. Not that yeah. it's like the best book you've ever. I mean, not not that it. Oh God, be. no! Oh God, no! I don't mean that. Please take that back right away. Cut that out. Um, no, I don't mean that. I mean, it, I I have a lot of fun reading from the book. It's um, you know the short stories. Um, I'm really language centered, and um, the narrative may be a little bit slower. This novel rocks a little bit more, so I've got more exciting little pieces to read and more engagement with an audience. Well, it's um, fun. It's fun so when you have when you have work that plays well live. You know, like you can yeah, do scenes. Exactly. That, you, That's what I meant to say. Yeah. You said well. <laughs> okay. Well, I uh, I congratulate you on it. I hope you have fun this weekend and and on the subsequent Thanks. tour. And I wish you all the best of luck. Well, thank you, thank you. Thanks for having me on here. Okay, you guys, that's Adrienne Heron. Go get her novel. It is called A Man Came Out of a Door in the Mountain. It's available from Penguin. You can find Adrienne online at adrianneheron.com. And she's also on the Twitter where her handle is at Adrienne Heron. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And, uh, hey, don't forget about the app, the free official Other People app. 
It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the very best way to listen to this program, you guys. You got to get the app. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You don't have to do anything. They just show up. You can download episodes to listen to offline. And best of all, you can access premium content and the program's full archives all via the app. So here's how it works. You go get the app. The app is free. And it's available for whatever device you might have. From there, you get the most recent 50 episodes of this podcast for free. No charge. And then uh, if you want to access the archives and the other uh, 200-something episodes at this point, you sign up for premium and you sign up right there in the app. It costs $2. 2 bucks a month and you get access to everything. Every single show, including my conversations with authors like Cheryl Strayed, David Shields, Eric Larson, George Saunders, Sam Lipsight, Roxanne Gay, Susan Orlean, Tayari Jones, Tao Lin. The list goes on. So please go get the app. The app is free. And then uh, sign up for premium right there in the app and support the show for a couple of bucks. I would appreciate that. Uh, otherwise, what? It's still raining. And you want to know something funny. Because this is a, a desert location, because Los Angeles is in you know, like a, a desert, it, it cannot handle rain. The infrastructure of this city is not built for precipitation meaning uh, the sewer systems, and then just the natural terrain. So if you can imagine the ground, and especially if you can imagine it in the wake of a uh, significant drought, it's like hard, flat, baked desert earth. And then suddenly you throw in five inches of uh, rain, and that rain will just sit there on top of that earth, and it will pool, and it will cause uh, flooding. And then eventually it'll seep into the earth and that will uh, turn the earth into mud. And then the uh, earth will slide and it will destroy things. So even when we get what we need, this is my point. Even when we get what we so desperately need, it turns into a disaster. (laughs) Isn't that how life is? Please remember that Anthony Trollope died of a stroke and that Jackson Pollock once said, quote, when the canvas is on the floor, I feel closer to it. That is it for now. That's all. That's uh, thanks to Adrienne Heron. Go get her novel. Uh, I'll be back again soon with another episode. There's some good ones coming up. And uh, what? <laughs> Follow me on Twitter, at Brad Listy for Stream of Consciousness ban- uh, Blather. And then also uh, the show has a feed at Other People Pod for some additional uh, musing. Okay, get home safe from Seattle. Don't fall asleep uh, with your mouth open on the airplane. Don't do that. Just don't be that person. It's a, it's an unattractive thing. Just put your head down on your tray table. Uh, perhaps get a neck pillow. Keep your mouth closed. Or uh, perhaps if you're feeling courageous, you could rest your head on the shoulder of the stranger sitting next to you. 